This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your counselor, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your counselor in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. It's convenient, it's professional, and it's affordable. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. And again, that's BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com forward slash Billy. This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Einstein, James Dean, Brooklyn's got a winning team, David Crockett, Peter Pan, Elvis Presley, Disneyland. Hello and welcome to episode 48 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that is history through a Billy Joel number one hit. All the people, places and moments that shaped our world, the ones racing for space, turning up the Cold War heat, building things up and knocking them down. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, you ready to start some fires? Am I ever. Because, Katie, what are we talking about today? Disneyland! <laughs> what do you think of when you think about Disneyland? Oh, I think about enforced fun. Uh, it's like a giant fun bully. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, Oksana from Siberia, and uh, she grew up in Soviet Russia thinking that uh, the whole idea of Disneyland was the be-all, end-all because th- she was surrounded by grayness everywhere, and she thought that to go into this neon-slash-pastel world would just be it. And uh, she said when she finally made it to Euro Disney in Paris that... She just found it so culturally weird that as soon as you cross through the op- the gates, you were expected to have fun. And as a Russian, she said, we just don't do fun on command. <laughs> it made no sense. How about you? Yes, I went to Disneyland when I was 20 and I was backpacking through the western part of the States. And I was staying in that way you do when you're backpacking. I was staying with a relative who I'd never seen before and I've never seen since. She was, I think, a fourth cousin. She was 26, which seemed unimaginably old. She had her own car. (laughs) She had an apartment with a swimming pool, which blew my mind. Her instructions to me, Katie, as she dropped me off at the crack of dawn at Disneyland were, if you're going to do this properly, you should take acid. And I remember thinking, well, listen, we're... If I wanted to do acid, where am I finding acid yeah, this at this is, point in the day? This is like, uh, you know, news you can use 24 hours ago. Yeah, so. Exactly. And then I went in and a bit like your friend from Siberia, I think I had this idea that it was almost literally going to be a magic kingdom. Hmm. And after about 15, 20 minutes, it sort of dropped and I went, oh, it's a theme park. That was how powerful this, this idea was. It wasn't a theme park. It was... It was somewhere yeah, almost literally magical. But did you get sucked into the world once you were in there, or were you just cynical and resistant throughout, like a cold uh, <laughs> Britisher from the north? I had spent the previous day at the Richard Nixon Museum. Oh, my God. Because that's up the road in Anaheim. So my, my cynical brain was on red alert. Yeah. And then I started seeing all these parallels between 
what Nixon was like and what Walt Disney was like. And it was such a, a brainwashing experience about how amazing Walt Disney was. And even at that point, I was sort of conscious that there were some dark rumours about Walt Disney and what he was like and the sort of the House Committee on Un-American Activities that Nixon had been involved in. So there was a weird sort of paranoia in my head. What I would suggest to you is that you were overthinking it. Even <laughs> Possibly. As, I, I don't know what kind of egghead you were at age 20, but um, you didn't sound like loads of laughs, at least on that day. <laughs> well, listen, you and me know a bit about Disneyland. Should yes. we talk to our guest who knows a whole lot more? Yes, I think that's a swell idea. So our guest this week is a familiar face. She did expand our frontal lobes in the Davy Crockett episode a few weeks ago, and she's back for more. And well, Frankly, so are we. Dr. Amy Davis is a Disney scholar, and she teaches film studies at the University of Hull, and she knows just about everything there is to know about Disney and U.S. animation. So here we go, Tom. Welcome to Disneyland. So, um, hello, Amy. Hi, it's good to be here. We have before us the original Walt Disney map um, or a facsimile. We don't have the real thing because the real <laughs> thing sold for seven hundred eight thousand dollars at an auction in twenty seventeen. Wow! Um, <laughs> so this presumably this is what the park layout was like mm. uh, when the park opened in nineteen fifty five, seventeenth of July mm. for invited guests, which is a story in and of itself, and for the live broadcast of its opening, and then eighteenth of July fifty five mm. for general audience yeah and so what would we have seen there yeah let's say because there was there was invited guests weren't there this first mm. day and then they were yeah. the ones who sneaked in yeah i'm guessing katie and i would probably be the ones who sneaked in <laughs> can't see us getting the, the the nod from walt yeah and there seemed to be, there seems to have been a, a gap in one of the fences there also seemed to have been a lot of counterfeit tickets um right so we've gone through this gap in the fence katie we walk in amy mm -hmm. to disneyland right we're we're so excited what do we see um, a few, fair few things that are actually still there. Things like um, Peter Pan's Flight uh, is one of the rides there on opening day. All, of course, you know, the, the sort of basic layout of it, like, um, you know, the main street that you come in on if you've not stuck, snuck in through the fence, um, you know, and all the shops and everything along that and the sort of, you know, turn of the 20th century feel that it was meant to have, which, of course, remember, is within living memory of a good chunk of the people who were there in 1955. The, the rocket ship to the moon ride lasted for a very long time. I don't think it's still there. I want to know more about why it was considered so revolutionary to have a theme park that included fun for adults as well mm -hmm. as kids. Because now we just take that for granted. Yeah. Like, you know, what with adults dressing up happily at, during Halloween and, you know, kidults, the kidult culture of people dressing like toddlers for their entire lives. <laughs> but uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, some, yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly, I mean, on the one hand, particularly in the 50s, there's less of that sort of youth-obsessed culture because the baby boom generation that really brings that about are still young children. Some of them are still being born or have yet to be born. So there is more of a, a sort of emphasis on being proper grown-ups. And Disneyland, as it's conceived in 1955, is in part about giving you a chance to, to escape into an imagination, even if you've, you know, I think it's Joseph Campbell who says, you know, if you've lost your ability as an adult to imagine, don't worry, you can step into Walt Disney's and, you know, have fun and play. And it becomes, you know, it's constructed 
as a kind of liminal space. I don't know how much Walt Disney himself and some of his people would have thought, oh, yes, this will be a great liminal space. But that's effectively what it is. What's a liminal space, Amy? A liminal space is a place that is neither here nor there. Um, A liminal space in the sense of Disneyland is a place where you step out of your everyday life. You can be your most weird or childlike or whatever self. And I'm not equating those. I'm just saying you whatever you want to be, you can be that's not your normal everyday self. And then when you walk back out the gates, then you can go back to, you know, your life. It's the cumulative effect, I think, Katie, of all that, all the exposure we have to Disney when we're kids, whether it's the films or the songs. Like I spent yesterday listening to a lot of Disney songs (laughs) just to get me in the in the right headspace for this show and there's there's all the ones we know bare necessities all the classics there's the, the little sort of folky beauties on robin hood where they try and get a bit of 60s countercultural folk guitar in there right so you listen to snow white singing someday my prince will come someday and my prince will come does she sing like that's that that's good like, <laughs> like it made me think, and it made me think about um Vera Lynn it was almost like a sort of forces sweetheart you could see what it would have meant to people listening to that they're listening to Snow White but also you know there may be in that post-war period you know their husbands or their sons might be in uh, might be overseas they might be serving and then you think of all the effect of all those songs like what for you Katie when you were growing up what were the Disney songs that were just in your head uh, probably something from Jungle Book. I have to say, I wasn't really... Was I a Disney kid? I do remember the Disney TV show mm-hmm. being on television with the fireworks behind the Magic Castle and the, mm-hmm. the harp sound. <laughs> um, and I do remember, as you mentioned, Tom, Bear Necessities, you know, those sort of songs. But I don't think that I was locked into it as a source of pleasure and escape in the way that I was locked into David Cassidy's tight <laughs> jeans on the Partridge family on Friday night. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I got an early start on my hormones. But um, I was actually uh, talking recently with a friend of mine who had seven years of being various princes at various Disneyland. So he was Prince Charming and all other manner of princes and occasionally a Goofy and a Pluto and random characters in a parade. Uh, Not only in the original Disneyland, but he worked at Disney World and then for three contracts in Tokyo Disneyland. And uh, the Tokyo Disneyland was the most amazing experience that he had. He said, number one, it is like a cult, just as you say, Amy, where people are like, they're, they're in it to win it. You know, they show up and they're totally committed mm-hmm. to the experience even before they get there. And he said, particularly in Japan, there was a lot of intensity and excitement. It was like kind of a Beatlemania experience because he said for a lot of the Japanese who were there, it was the first white person that they'd ever seen. My friend said that all the cast members were instructed by management to not speak Japanese. So just, you know, don't break the spell. And uh, he was saying that he had some incredible experiences there. One day, he remember, well, he said he remembered seeing a lady and her child showing up time after time as he was there with various princesses, do, you know, roaming the park and doing a shtick. And one day, the mom brought her little girl up to him and said to the little girl, this is your father. And what? <laughs> oh. And uh, 
he had to just think in the moment of course in his head he's screaming no 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 and he thought no I, I cannot ruin the little girl's experience and I can't you know call her mother a liar in front of her so he discreetly pulled over a supervisor and quickly explained the situation and the supervisor had to take the the pair away and kind of smooth out the situation and he said after that he did still see them in the park but they were uh, at a discreet distance while he was in the parade (laughs) so that was a unusual experience what a strange job are there rules Amy if you work at Disneyland so if Katie and I got a job at at Disneyland at at this point when it's opening up what are the do's and don'ts well, and I won't pretend that I know all the do's and don'ts. I've never been a cast member myself, um, and but you would be a cast member. You would not be an employee. And so if you are anywhere where guests can see you, you are on stage. And that means that whatever your persona is, whether you are you know, interpreting a character or whether you work as you know one of the, the shop assistants, a, a waiter, a street cleaner, you are a cast member, you are on stage and you have to be polite, you have to be friendly, you have to be welcoming, and you cannot break the spell. Um, I've talked to a number of, of in, you know, cast members from Disneyland and Disney World um, and a couple from Disneyland Paris, and it's the same story, particularly though for the American parks. It's much more sort of customer service oriented in that way. Um, and indeed, Disney is seen as a leader, actually, in customer service, and they, they have trained for other companies. Uh, they're even the ones who innovate the idea of the name badge. Hmm. Um, but it's the idea that, you know, if someone asks you a question that to literally correctly answer it would break the spell, you change it slightly. For instance, there's a, a wire that can be seen uh, coming from one of the turrets at, on the castle in the Magic Kingdom that goes, you know, this big wire, you know, obviously from a distance it looks much smaller, but you can still see it. Now, its actual function is for the person who is being Tinkerbell to use that as her path <laughs> to fly at the start of the fireworks display. Well, in later years, when the, when they were asked this question, what cast members would be instructed to say is, oh, that's an antenna so that uh, Prince Charming can, can watch uh, ESPN. Now, yes, Disney owned ESPN. <laughs> owns ESPN. <laughs> so Brand that's awareness, a nice, Disney. Yeah. Nice, yep. Cross-promotion. Very important. But, yeah, it's also, you know, you don't tell them, oh, that's just the wire for, t- for Tinkerbell to ride down. Because... Tinkerbell doesn't need a wire. Tinkerbell flies. She's a fairy. They're also expected, and this sounds bizarre um, to put it this way, but it's how you, the only way to put it. They're expected to plan for at least a couple of spontaneous moments every day. Plan for spontaneous moments. How does this work? Well, it's thing, just to be prepared for various scenarios. So if you see someone spill their popcorn, you go and you get them a new thing of it, you know, here on the house, Ugh. playing with the guests, particularly if they're like waiting for a parade to come and you see like, say, a group of kids sitting on the sidewalk waiting for their, you know, and their spot for the parade. So having, you know, sort of Disney themed sort of confetti to sort of 
give them or throw at them stickers to give them all of that kind of stuff so it's yeah yeah but up to a certain line of course because my prince charming friend was saying because uh, i said yeah, you can't pretend to be their actual father you can't pretend <laughs> to be their actual father and and he said uh especially in in tokyo disneyland there was a lot of fascination and interest and he said whereas if he showed up in a parade in the original disneyland they'd be like oh yeah cool prince charming but in Tokyo Disneyland, screaming girls, tears, you know, just total rock star frenzy. And he said when he would pose for photos, there would be much ass grabbing going on, just surreptitious. Not from him, no, from from the guests. Sad to say that goes on in the American parks as well. I mean, he said that um, he regularly got gifted with photo albums at the end of his workday, filled with pictures of him that the the fans... Had taken throughout the day, gotten quickly developed at the you know. Uh, yeah, there was always a camera shop on camera the shop, street, yeah, yeah, camera kiosk, and then he'd be handed this full photo album of pictures of himself. And likewise, he had videos that uh, someone would have taken of him in a show, That's but so only freaky. him, not just taking the whole show, but just following him around. So just documenting him here. You'd like to have this uh, anyway. So he has a uh, thorough. Um, documentation of his life from the ages of 19 to age 26. And in fact, he said he was one time on his day off in uh, Japan. He was at a mall. He tried. He was in a shop. He saw a black leather jacket that he liked the look of. He tried it on. He thought, oh, yeah, this looks good. Looked at the price tag, thought, no, it's, it's a little too pricey. Put it back. He said he got home and the leather jacket was on his doorstep. No. So a f- That's creepy on a number of levels. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, so is that you know th- those are the perks of being a, a Disneyland rock star. Wow. Except they knew where he lived. <laughs> what's um what's Walt Disney like, Amy? I found a picture of him mm. right at the start of Disneyland, and mm. he's dapper. Mm. The hair's swept back. He's got a little 1950s moustache, nice mm. double-breasted suit. Mm-hmm. But you look at that photo, and it's still hard to get a sense of who he was because some people say he's a showman. Some people say. He's really shy. Some people say he's really right wing. Some people say that he's this lovely, caring guy. So who was he? Well, I mean, I think in part it depended on who you you talked to. And certainly this is something others have said. It depended in part on how well they were doing at work, whether or not Walt was the greatest guy in the world or a complete, you know. But, I mean, he seems to have been a very extroverted person. You know, he loved people. He loved being around people, getting his energy from people. He wasn't necessarily the most articulate of people. He wasn't the best educated person either. He graduated high school, but, you know, that was about it. And I think sort of he wasn't that interested in the academic side of things. He was known more as the the kid who did a lot of drawing and stuff and, and also had a fun sense of humor and loved to pull in particular pranks, practical jokes, that sort of thing. Ultimately, one a lot of people have said that one of his greatest talents was not as an animator or anything like that, though he was initially an animator. He stopped doing that after a while because he was too busy with other things. But his real talent was being able to discover the talents of other people and bring that out of them and put people together who might not have thought they could work well together. And it turns out to be this great collaboration. Um, he was, by all accounts, a very devoted and loving father. He had two daughters, Diane and Sharon, and they'd come to the studio with him a lot on Saturdays. But on one of their daddy-daughter days, you know, he's sitting in a park on a bench 
watching them have fun on the rides, you know, the, the merry-go-round and things like that and thinking, you know, there must be some place where we can all have fun together, where adults and children can spend the day actually together and not the grown-ups sitting on a bench watching the kids have fun. Um, he could get very grumpy and very moody, but could also get really enthusiastic and excited. And there's a story, there are many people have told this story who worked at the Disney studio, that um, the guard at the gate would let people know what mood Walt was in if he was in a bad mood. And he would just, he had a code word, bear suit. And if you, you know, if you're coming in for work for the day and he goes, bear suit, Walt's having a bad day today. Um, he was an incredibly, uh, we'd probably call him a workaholic nowadays. Yeah. Um, you know, he'd spend many, many hours working. He had a bathroom in his office so that when he did pull all-nighters, he could shower and get and shave and get back to work. Toilet of tomorrow. There you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested, speaking of tomorrow, um, I'm interested in his, uh, did he, is this true that he had his head frozen? No. Oh, no. no. Got it. In fact, the, uh, the first really person to have a cryogenic uh, treatment like that was a few months after Walt Disney had died. Nobody's really sure where that legend comes from, um, but it's total urban myth. Mm. Um, it may in part stem from the fact that his death was so unexpected. It was so sudden. He went into the hospital to have lower back surgery for what he thought was an old injury from back in the 30s when he used to play polo. That was very fashionable in Hollywood in the 30s. And he fell off enough that the he was told by his insurance company he couldn't play polo anymore. So he thought it was just a holdover from that. And um, when they opened him up to fix it, they found apparently a lump the size of a walnut in one of his lungs. He was a, a heavy smoker for most of his life, I think from his young teens. And they initially, at that stage, diagnosed him as having six months to live. And in fact, he only lived another six weeks. Mm. And no one outside the close family knew how sick he was. And he just, you know, he died so unexpectedly, even for the family, that they went to the hospital to visit him and, you know, realized he, he had died in the night. And his brother was, you know, there with his body, you know, sort of saying goodbye as his daughter and her husband and kids and his wife walk in mm. to, to see him. Hardcore. And he was cremated later that day, and then his death was announced publicly the following day, because um, they wanted to have at least, as a family, one day to grieve mm. without having to you know, deal with others. And I imagine um, that there was quite a difference post-Disney in terms of the park, because I gather while he was still alive that there was very much kind of a <coughs> feeling of family and mm -hmm. that we're all in this together. Yeah. And he loved being there. He was constantly yeah. there, sometimes openly there as Walt. Yeah. And a lot of times also just he'd put on like big hat overalls, you know, sort of gruff himself up. Yeah. Because, yeah, he was very dapper. <laughs> he was always known as a really great dresser. And he'd kind of scruffy up and, and all of that and go in and just stand in the queues and all of that because he wanted to see what it was like for regular people. He was very aware when Walt Disney walks into Disneyland, he gets different treatment. Sure. But, oh, um, so yeah, at that stories. time, it is much more sort of, he is the guiding light, particularly for the parks. Um, one of my favorite Walt Disney quotes is about Disneyland, where he actually says, Disneyland is my baby and I would prostitute myself for it. 
Wow. Yeah. So when he's gone, I mean, it throws the whole of the the Disney company into shell shock. Um, and it leaves them quite rudderless for really a very long time. The parks, though, because um, Roy Disney, his older brother, is still around. And he's like, okay, Walt has, has passed away. I'm going to try and keep his vision going. And he's very much the, the push to keep things going for, for Disney World in Florida. Um, and he actually, he died only uh, two months after Disney World opened in Florida. Roy did in um, December of 71. Once Roy's gone, Disney is run by committee. <laughs> and really, though, for the parks, that's actually the only profitable part of the Disney company for most of the 70s. It keeps, and even into the early 80s, it keeps Disney as an organization afloat because the films are really struggling. TV's still going okay, mm. but even the quality of that begins to drop. But the parks, people still are interested in those. And that's why um, Disney survives, one could argue, uh, during that period. Katie, I'm going to make the timeout signal with my hands there and reach for a cold compress because this has been big stuff. Let's have a few adverts. Hello, I'm Alan Cumming. And I have a new podcast called Alan Cummings Shelves. You see, I have quite a few shelves in my house that are sort of a museum of my life. In each episode, I'm going to take an item off my shelves, tell you why it's there in the first place, then start to talk about my memories of it. And then I chat with a friend who's involved in those memories. I've spoken to Ian McKellen about a hemp bracelet that he bought me on a nudist beach we visited together. Cindy Lauper about a pair of white leather gloves I wore on Broadway. And you even get to hear Jerry Halliwell talk about my Spice Girls lunchbox. And that is not a euphemism. I have some really amazing guests coming on to chat, so I just hope you will join me. And all you have to do to do that is to search for Alan Cummings Shelves, wherever you get your podcasts from. See you soon. Here's the weirdest thing, Katie, for me about Walt Disney. We try and work out what sort of man he was. Apparently, he used to pass secret information to the FBI. No, that's not true. Really? That actually comes from a heavily discredited uh, Thank biography. Thank you, Amy, for putting me right. I love how yeah. all we just have all this <laughs> fake news here. We're yeah. like, and yeah. you're bursting our bubble. Sorry, that's that's what lecturers do, I'm afraid. I did wonder what sort of secret information a man who's in charge of Mickey Mouse would have that would interest he had, he had J. Edgar Hoover. There is a kind of, I forget the exact title off the top of my head, um, but it's it's one of these sort of, you know, honorary titles. And Walt Disney was given many, many, many awards, titles, citations, things like that through his lifetime. So, yeah, that's all that that is from the FBI. But that comes from a heavily discredited biography uh, written by a guy who made his living writing tell-all biographies. Yes. Um, and the academic biographies that have been written about Walt Disney since then have shown that this is absolute poppycock to be utterly polite about it. <laughs> Amy, I was reading something about uh, Henry Kissinger, who was a secret Nixon Secretary of State, mm -hmm. who um, loved Disneyland, and he used to go kind of undercover as a popcorn seller and stuff. <laughs> uh, Kissinger did. Yeah, he? yeah. And, um, I mean, there must be other situations like that. Well, and certainly um, Richard Nixon himself was someone who, you know, was often involved in things at Disneyland. Um, one of his daughters, or both of his daughters as young girls, and the whole family's there, are ribbon cutters officially at the, the opening of the monorail. 
um, you know, he's a frequent visitor to the place. And even with Disney World, um, you know, he was president when and uh, when Disney World opens. And it's at the in the ballroom, the Contemporary Hotel at Disney World that he, during the Q&A to a speech, actually said his famous, I am not a crook line. Um, uh, so this would have been uh, during the Watergate yeah, scandal. Yeah, because uh, yeah, Disneyland opened in October of 71, so Watergate is just a few months later. Wow. And then the aftermath, obviously, is coming along around that time. So, Wow. Yeah, so that happened there, which I've, I've been in that room, and it was kind of like, yeah, cool. But it was for a, 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 a conference, and so it, it, there was no Nixon vibe about They don't have a plaque or anything saying Nixon said, I'm not a crook in this room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in the kind of uh, left of center freaks, uh, to put it affectionately, uh, who are attracted to Disneyland. So presumably when Disneyland was created, it was, you know, this whole very wholesome, all-American fantasy world. It's all very, you know, clean living and short hair. But as time rolled on, I gather, uh, Disneyland also had an appeal for to people who maybe were against the man, against the system, <laughs> that kind of thing. And there was apparently a, a, a yippee takeover that happened at the end of the 60s, where the, the mm. Youth International Party threatened to take over the park uh, because they were against the Vietnam War and they felt that, you know, some of the sponsors like Bank of America were helping to bankroll the war. So therefore, they were going to do this big, uh, you know, sit in and uh, certainly is good at getting publicity for their movement. Sure, sure. And uh, so I thought that was like, it's interesting that you get not only people who are showing up to protest, because obviously, it's on a, a huge world stage and a platform. But increasingly, in recent years, They'll have, uh, you know, goth day at Disneyland, which isn't, I guess, sanctioned by Disneyland, but it's just a bunch of goths getting together going, let's let our freak flag fly. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and they're fine with it. You know, as long as everybody is behaving themselves as all guests are expected to behave, have fun. Again, this is a this is a place to play. Yes. So if that's how you want to play, fine. And, you know, in more recent decades, Disney has increasingly embraced the whole sort of villain side of, of their legacy and story, you know, and, um, you know, because they didn't really merchandise the villains very much once mm. upon a time. But that fits, you know, it's absolutely fun. And also the fact that like a place that's so kind of square is also a playground for people who are, you know, self-styled rebels and mm. coolsters. Oh, and I have a friend who had her high school graduation party at Disneyland. I guess that's kind of a regular thing that you can rent out the park for that. I don't know about that, but they have grad nights. Yes, and, yeah. Um, Disneyland in particular has, yes. has often done that, but Disney World as well for, for local Florida so high school my, graduates. Yeah, yeah, that was it. So my friend went there for grad night. That's yeah, what it so, was. Yeah, it was probably not that sh her family rented out Disneyland because no. I don't think you can do that. No, but, no. Yeah, but these, she, are, these are things that the park does. Like an after hours thing. But yeah, I mean, Disney's, as long as you're well behaved, you know, don't cause harm, don't, you know, interfere with other people's enjoyment come along. Oh, and there's lots of um, celebrities who kind of got their start at Disneyland. Isn't that right? Like, uh, I think uh, Robin Williams, um, he was a riverboat captain, mm. and uh, Steve Martin did magic tricks. That I know there have been a lot of comedy it? writers and co and comedians who have been uh, the pilots on the ships in the Jungle River cruise and things like that. Because you have to be good at improvising. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the idea. Yeah. So are you allowed to, you're not allowed to date 
guest as a cast member. Are cast members allowed to date cast members? Mm, there are married couples who work at Disney, yeah. Wow. But you can't smooch on set, No, I'm guessing. No. Okay. <laughs> no, unless you're, you're Mickey and Minnie, yeah. then you could do a chaste kiss. But <laughs> Well, it's, it's hard to do anything but when you're wearing a giant head helmet yes but yeah um in fact i was at disney world in december and yes came off the the new sort of um skyway thing that takes you into epcot and walked out just as mickey and minnie were having a a sort of romantic moment and after their little kiss mickey sort of reels back you know with his hand on his heart like you know oh wow it's actually he's still enough after all these years what a relationship it's been what 92 years and they're still going strong <laughs> do you think that they're is a future for Disneyland because mm. like are we too cynical now no. or do you think that the, there'll always be a place for Disneyland I think that there will always be a place for it um if there ceases to be a place it will because they've priced us all out of it um not because people no longer have the urge to go as I say it's a place where you can escape the real world and it's a place that the real world only very very rarely intrudes upon um, 9-11, of course, the parks were evacuated as a potential security risk. Um, but yeah, it's it's a place to get away from the awfulness uh, that is in the world <laughs> the right now. The awfulness of the world. There's one thing more that I want to know, Amy, because me and Kate, I'm sure, will argue about this afterwards. Top uh, three Disney films for you? I don't know that I could choose. There are certainly films that I, I will watch just for fun, like, you know, it's not Halloween for me if I don't watch the Legend of Sleepy Hollow segment of The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. <laughs> um, I'm a huge fan of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and I've also um, talked about it extensively, um, have written about it extensively. It's work, but I do also love it, and I screen it every year on my American Animation History module, and every year I see something new that just kind of, in terms of the animation, that just takes my breath away. Um, but for me, honestly, it's the parks for me. You know, that was my my first love with Disney. I went as a five-year-old to Disney World in the early 70s, and it's always been about the parks for me. <laughs> always. Mm. Amy, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having I've me. I've learned so much about Disney and Katie. I've learned about Walt Disney I've learned about America in the 50s. I, I have to say that um, Amy's crushed some of my fondest <laughs> held uh, suppositions about Walt and his frozen head. That's what I do. Why yeah. would he, why would he fr- freeze his head? That's what I was wondering. Well, What's the av- advantage when you're dead of freezing your head? Because you bring you back to life. Yeah, and so he would get to see the future so, that he was so interested in, you know, and he, he was always so enamored by the possibilities of the future. So in this way, he'd actually get to see it for himself. So is he freezing it just like five seconds before he dies basically or i honestly don't i'm know. not sure and how I, that works yeah and yeah. i certainly don't know how it would have worked in it's in 67 that that the, the first person who goes under cryogenic freezing has that happen um but yeah i don't know i'm interested in that timeline as well because you know and is it the whole head is it just the brain what's the point of just your head yeah like well, yeah like why, why not, not your whole just body? yeah the whole <laughs> go the whole hog why not just get the whole enchilada in there and also are you is it like you know jumping rope where you're like waiting for like when's your point you're going to come in and do your double dutch skipping like i'm going to die i think i'm going to die in half an hour five minutes like how do you or time- essentially are you like euthanizing you're you know having yourself yeah. euthanized yeah, effectively euthanized, you know like going d- in for the precisely you know. one more day before you freeze me 
that would be the way, wouldn't it? It'd yeah. Be like, I think I'm ready. Actually, actually, just hold off a bit. I just want that one last bowl of ice cream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> would you have your head frozen, Casey, if the option was there? Uh, if I were going to freeze my head, Tom, I would have done it when I was about 22, <laughs> when my head was at its best. I just freeze that and probably my ass. <laughs> what about the area in between? Um, that can ebb and flow as it will. Um, can my head and my ass still be interfered with even while it's they frozen? Melted. They could be mounted. They're melted. Say- melted. <laughs> um, all right. Okay. Either way, I'm good with that. <laughs> um, how about you? Anything that you want to freeze on your body? <laughs> um, it almost feels like a decision that I can't take for myself. It needs to be one that maybe people who know me better might say, do you know what? Let's lose the whole lot or let's, <laughs> let's keep the gizzards, wherever gizzards are. <laughs> I like this particular nook. That cranny can go. Yeah, we've seen too much of that already. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, the whole timeline scenario is very confusing as well. Like, when do you make the decision to freeze something? But anyway, I don't have to think about that anymore, apparently, because Walt Disney did not freeze his head. Therefore, I don't have to think about it anymore. <laughs> um, don't know if Billy's thinking about freezing anything. Maybe his fingers. Yeah, for posterity, his yeah. piano playing fingers. Which would look like uh, just a series of, I imagine, frozen sausages. <laughs> so delicious <laughs> at the barbecue. Uh, so did Billy do the right thing in including Disneyland in the song, do we think? I don't want to kiss uh, Billy's frozen ass or his real ass, Katie, but I think he <laughs> had to include Disneyland because it's culturally so significant, isn't it? Yes. You might never have been to Disneyland, but you still know all about Disneyland. You know what? I bet he had Mickey Mouse ears. Yeah. I mean, not really coming out of his head. I think he wore the Mickey Mouse ears. Yeah. So yeah. I think Billy did the right thing. All right. Um, but I almost find myself accelerating through this part of the podcast, Katie, because <laughs> next week we have someone who makes my voice do this. And also Billy's voice did that, even though he was only <laughs> yeah. about 12 at the time. Because remember, he was quite hot to trot. He was quite warm for Brigitte Bardot's form. Goodness gracious me. I have to say, I was a little uh, itchy in the pants department for her. As a young girl, mm. you know, when you're young and you don't really know how you're going to end up, you mm. just think that all nubile people, whether they're boys or girls, are quite <laughs> sexy. Yeah. And maybe even some animals. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I mean by that. <laughs> well, I shall spare your blushes, Katie, by making you blush and asking you to talk about another podcast oh, that you are doing. Yes, I am. I'm working on another podcast. It's called Dot Com. And this one is all about Wikipedia. It's the only podcast documentary series about people of the Internet. I'm all over this gosh darn thing. I'm talking to a lot of people who are on the Internet, specifically Wikipedia. You've heard of that. Katie, I'm intrigued already. Um, What exactly is series one about? Well, I'll tell you. It's more than just nerds. It's pretty gosh darn frisky. It digs the paradox that the World Wide Web's most extensive information source is forged by humankind's most ancient network, people power. I tell you what, it's been fascinating to burrow into the histories and controversies surrounding a website that most of us use every day but take for granted. It's almost like the matrix of Wikipedia, and I'm exposing the molecules that make up the monolith, the altruistic volunteers and occasional saboteurs behind the millions of constantly edited pages. 
Well, Katie, I'll be honest, you have me at Katie's on it. But also I have listened <laughs> to this podcast and I have to say it's amongst your finest work. Really? Even better than Frozen Ass Talk? Never. No, Frozen Ass Talk is amazing, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's hard to top that. But the whole series is out now. So everybody just... Go listen to it. Binge, binge, binge. And you search for dot com. And just for clarity, that is D-O-T-C-O-M. And please hit that subscribe button. And in the meantime, please follow us and subscribe, of course. We are at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. If you would like to email us on social media, Katie, we are, as always, at spread that fire. I'm just going to be waiting by my computer to hear from all of you. Get typing. <laughs> Crowd Network, a place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.